Sharp, Smith! Sharp pinching it back from Dixon. It's a beauty! Lee Sharp, Patrick Hunting. It's raining goals at Highbury. Sharp, it's there. And Sharp with a chance to score here, and he does it. Oh, on the volley by Lee Sharp. It's another one. It's Sharp. Here's Lee Sharp. Sharp has made it 2 2. It's his week indeed. Hello and welcome to another episode of the United Podcast. I'm Helen. Sam and Maisie are here too. How are we? All good. Good. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Helen. How are you? Yes, I'm very good. Thank you. Week nine, is it, of lockdown? Eight. I've lost, I've lost count. Been a long time, hasn't it? Are we all surviving though? Yeah, fine. I've just got, I just desperately need a haircut is my main, my main worry. And it's not much of a worry. So I think I'm basically fine. Get your missus to do it. Yeah, she has offered a lot. Uh, but um, I actually don't have any equipment. I don't have what you would need for a haircut. Well, I suppose I have got scissors in the house, but... Kitchen scissors, yeah. I shaved Johnny's head, actually, a few weeks ago, so that was interesting. I've, I offered that. I did tell Joe she could shave my head, um, but I think there's a genuine fear I'll look like a serial killer. Yeah, that was my worry, too. Well, Johnny actually told me I was doing it on a three, because I was like, oh, I don't know about this. He was like, it's fine, it's a three, and then I started doing it, but I wasn't going, like, really close. And he was like, just go closer. It's not close enough. Then he told me that it was actually a zero I did. Oh, that's amazing. Because yeah. he was like, if I had told you it was a zero, you never would have done that. <laughs> so it's well shaved. Then. So yeah. 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 Okay, right. Should we podcast it? Yes. Today's guest is another regularly requested one and one who's proved pretty hard to get hold of. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, though, uh, I want to say a big thank you to everybody who's been getting in touch. As the podcast has grown, so too have the number of lovely emails we've had. And we do try to read them out at the end and we will read out a load when we finish this one. Uh, so if you've sent one in and you'd like to hear us responding to it or talking about it, we will do our best to do that at the end of this record. And if we don't manage it this time, we'll try and do it next time. So today's guest is Lee Sharp, one of the first Spice Boys if you like a celebrity footballer and a good friend of yours Maisie yes great lad Sharpie yeah still keep in touch with him still now with the, we've hung up our boots we're um, more keen golfers picked up your golfing shoes yeah I was just <laughs> yeah, going to say yeah, yeah got the golfing <laughs> shoes out yeah but no great lad it'll be um, it'll be a really really good podcast this I know it will because he loves chatting very open uh, very honest so it'll be a good podcast it will what is he up to now Maisie uh, after dinner speaking mm-hmm. does he does the circuits and basically just plays golf as much as he can he's got a little putting green in the back of his garden is he better than you? Oh, he's a good player Sharpie yeah he's never beat me but he's a good Ooh. player see that was very <laughs> diplomatic you see, you see, you see what will happen when, if, we ever be, if we get onto the topic he will actually turn around and say that I'm a bandit and I shouldn't be playing off six what does he play off? I think Sharpie's off two, three something like that good player very con- consistent when you say playoff, you're talking about handicap, aren't you? I, my head was like, well, you play off a tee because I just have no interest in golf. Yes, yes. Handicaps. Handicaps, yeah. yeah. That would be it. Uh, all right, as a footballer, do you think he could have been better than he was? Uh, I don't know. I think... Maybe a longer career than what he had. Hmm. Possibly, yeah. Maybe, I mean, the emergence of, obviously, Giggsy and, and Sharpie on the left wing. I mean, Sharpie played left back as well. But he also had Dennis to contend with there. I don't know. It'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see how he how he looks on his United kit career, whether he actually left maybe a little bit too early or would he have done things a little bit different? I'm not sure. And retired at 32. Like, that's so young, isn't it? Yeah, it is. To, to be fair, though, 32 is probably a decent innings 
It'd have been 17, was he, when he started at United? 17, yeah. Yeah, seven, 17 when he made his debut. Yeah, so that's 15 years of football. I think his journeys as well. Sampdoria, Bradford, Leeds, uh, United. <laughs> um, so yeah, he'll have, he'll, have, he'll have played with some characters anyway. Yeah, uh, including you. Do you think there's a, a similarity to Norman Whiteside, who obviously made his debut for United as, as such a young teenager and Sharpie did it at 17. And he did so much so young that by the time he was in his mid-twenties, do you think he was just a bit burnt out? I think there's always a chance of that, isn't there? You know, we, we look at players now coming into coming into United and there's always that, that burnout phase or you don't want to give them too many games, but Wazza was the same. He came to the club really young and yet went on to play God knows how many games and become United's all leading goal scorer. But I think, I think for Sharp, he's... I don't know. I don't know. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see what he says about it all because um, he came into the in, into United very young and got huge success very early on, playing in such great teams. Also, I imagine he's got some great stories. Will he tell them all, though? Let's hear from Lee Sharp. Today's guest is someone who has proved one of the most elusive and evasive former players we've had on the podcast, despite being a good friend of David May. Well, that's what he tells us anyway. <laughs> we've spent months trying to pin you down. Lee Sharp, we are delighted that you are finally here. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you. Lots of ex-players have recommended that we speak to you. Really? You must have some good stories then, Lee. I'm surprised because I've got some dodgy stories on a lot of them and I'm surprised they want to say anything. <laughs> so many people have suggested. Lots of listeners say that we should get you and lots of ex-players. But Maisie, you finally did it for us. Yes, finally got him to um, agree to it, yeah. Personal terms were a little bit tough. <laughs> Obviously a three-year deal and stuff like that, but we've managed to peg him down. Do you listen to many podcasts, Lee? No. I'm a bit of a YouTuber. I watch a bit of YouTube, uh, but I don't really listen to podcasts. What, what do you watch? A bit of golf and golf lessons. I'm a bit uh, going down the spiritual route, so I'm a bit meditation and deep thinking and how your brain works and all that sort of jargon. Ah, hmm. uh, yeah? Yeah. I'd never put you down for that. Uh, I never judge a book by its cover, maybe. I know you don't eat a lot as well. That's true. That's true, pal. Yes, <laughs> yes. Don't judge the outside figure. What's exactly. actually underneath it, yes. These are just baggy T-shirts. There's, there's an athlete in there trying to get out. <laughs> so you don't listen to podcasts, but do you know anything about our podcast? Just say yes. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> Basically a little this is your life story all about from your childhood and football and anything in between. So that's what we're going to be doing. I think people are excited about the in-betweens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a married man now. I can't talk about that. <laughs> yes, with and how many children do you have now, Lee? Two. Two. What age are they? Three and two. Oh, keeping you busy in lockdown. The little boy put us into a false sense of security. He was good as gold. He does as he's told. Little girl is just a diva. <laughs> that's girls for you. He does what she wants, when she wants, how she wants. Will you be getting your son into golf or football? Uh, well, he, he kicks the ball around, around the garden and I've got a couple of little golf clubs. We've got the garden astroturf, a little putting green. It's all sort of golf orientated. So he gives it a whack now and again. So it looks like he could be a bit of a golfer. What would be your preferred sport for him? Probably golf, to be fair, because I can play with him then and he's got longer to play. Mm. Sorry, that, that's my beer machine just chilling. <laughs> 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 Amazing. Is that what you call your belly these days? 
It's just waiting for another one, Paul. <laughs> Before you come on, Sharpie, we were just talking about golf. I asked Maisie who's better at golf. I uh, without doubt, but his handicap's too high. See? Told you. But you've never beat him? I think his handicap's from a like seven, ridiculous. Six, he be six, about six. And he, he, probably, he probably should be three or four. See. Whenever you're playing comps, I'm two shots help. I don't know. <laughs> so let's go back to the start, Lee, for you. Talk to us about growing up. What was your childhood like? Childhood, I would say, was pretty idyllic, really. Uh, we lived on a, an estate, so it was sort of a bit of a safe haven. So it was all football, bikes, outdoors. I, th- I think games, consoles, Ataris and stuff come out probably when I was about eight or nine, but wasn't really interested. Uh, always outdoor on my bike, playing football and doing different stuff. So it's pretty idyllic. And, and then about 11, we moved out to, to a different area so I could get into a different school. But pretty much the same, met, met some new pals and played football and went on bikes. And uh, so I was always outside. You were a Villa fan then? Yeah, yeah, I was a, I was a Villa fan. My dad, my dad was a Birmingham City fan. Uh, and because my dad's half Irish and my granddad on my mum's side weren't too keen on the Irish at the time, so you're not supporting what he supports, you can support the Villa. <laughs> so being a granddad's boy, I went, yeah, okay, granddad, I'll, I'll support the Villa. And, and at the time, to be fair, Villa won the European Cup in you know, the 80 81 football team for, for Villa was top draw so that was uh, that was my sort of put into liking football Gary Shaw Tony Morley Gordon Cowens all that sort of mob Did you go watch them Sharpie? I went a few times Eight, the 80s was pretty bad for football violence Yeah and When I got to like 13, 14 and ready to go with my mates I went probably about half a dozen times it was like three or four buses across town and mum weren't keen but yeah went, went stood on the old end a few times and that was awesome loved it At that sort of time in your life you're 13, 14 going to the odd game was football your big passion and did people see you as a very talented young footballer? Was there talk that you could like maybe be playing for Villa one day or anything like that? Uh, that was that was the talk out of our house. I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, right, right from, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12, well, younger than that, I've always said I was going to be a footballer. My dad said I always had half a chance. My mum always said there's hundreds of thousands of kids who want to be footballers. Why don't you concentrate on getting a real job? Uh, and my dad always said, well, someone's got to be, why not him? So I was, I was sort of decent at school. Never really, it, it was weird because I never really played for the district and county at my age group, but I played for them both at the age above. It was a bit, it was a bit clicky my age and they picked the sort of same Sunday league players, if you like. So I didn't really get into my age group, but I ended up playing for the year above. So but I've, I've always sort of played above myself, if you like. So I've never really played under a lot of pressure because I was always younger. It was always just go out and do what you want to do. So many players that we have interviewed started playing up front and they've got moved around over their career. What position did you play when you were a youngster? Uh, well, I started off in the Cubs team when I was eight and I got I got put at left back and a corner came in and I had my hand on the post and as someone took a shot from the corner, I sort of controlled it, dribbled around two of them in the side of the six-yard box and sort of passed it down the wing and everybody was screaming, kick it, kick it! <laughs> I mean, oh, he's, he's too dangerous to play at the back. Let's get him out of the way and play him up front. So I became a left winger and that was pretty much from eight years old. I thought you were going to say, oh, he's really composed. Oh, he's really skillful. Let's no. put him in midfield. No, just he's a liability. <laughs> just get him out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Did you care where you played? You just, Or did you just want to be on the pitch? I just, I, I, I always wanted to dribble with it. I was always a little bit greedy as a kid, I think, as a Sunday League player. One of my nicknames at my Sunday League club was Scissors says like once you beat one or two you've got to cut the string and pass the ball because I'd beat two and then go back again and try and beat them again and manager's nightmare <laughs> yeah 
Was it was 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 anybody growing up sharp who used to idolise? Would it have been Tony Marley? Tony Morley for the Villa. Yeah. And I was sort of got a little bit older. I like Glenn Hoddle in midfield. Yeah. Did you model did you try and model yourself on anyone? Or? Uh no. I don't, I don't think so. No, not particularly. I think it was just... No. I just love dribbling past people and... Taking the mick out of people. Pretty much, yeah. 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 Then at 16, you're then playing regularly for Torquay. How did that come... Shappy, how did that come about getting to Torquay? Well, I signed uh, I signed for Birmingham City at 15. They let me go at 16, so they hadn't got the aggression to be a top-flight player. And then I went to Torquay. Funny enough, there were, there were half a dozen lads that I played Sunday League with that played in a different district team. Uh, they knew someone who knew someone... One of, the, one of the lads' granddads knew someone in Torquay. They went for a trial. Three of them got invited back for a second trial. And in the meantime, I'd been let go by Blues. And they said, can we bring our mate down? And they said, yeah. Uh, so I went down for a trial, played three games in three days. Uh, and they offered me a YTS. So I think, I think the YTS started on the 1st of July and Wolves, where I was due to go for a trial, had their trial started on the 1st of July. And funny enough, I was going to Wolves as, uh, as a centre-forward. I had trials at West Brom as a centre-forward and got let go from, from the trial. So Torquay was sort of last chance saloon, really. I was, uh, I was actually chatting, because I'd been let go by Birmingham, I was actually chatting to the careers officer at our careers there at school about joining the forces, going in the army and doing something like that. No way. Wow. wow. What, what was it like? How long were you, were you involved in the Birmingham setup before they said, you're not going to make it here? Just a year. So I signed when I was 15, they let me go at 16, and, and a lot of the lads have been there since they were 12, 13, and a lot of them played for the same sort of Birmingham Sunday League team. So again, that was a little bit clicky and I didn't really feel comfortable and at home. Uh, so I wasn't overly disappointed when I got let go by Birmingham, but it was it was a bit of a sort of desperate situation because I had nowhere else to go. Do you know that that that, that point in your life at 16, yeah, 16 year old, did you think you'd miss your chance? Yeah, I think I think when because uh, I had three day trial at, at Torquay, I think it was the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I came home late on the Thursday night and then had a trial for West Brom on the Friday. So I played three games. Torquay knew I was going for this trial at West Brom, so played me in all three games. So they knew I was going to be knackered by the time I got to the West Brom game. So yeah, when I, when I come out the West Brom trial, and I, I hadn't played well, so I knew they wouldn't offer me anything. And then Wolves were starting their trials at the start of July. I thought uh, I thought I was in a spot of bother. Yeah. How did the interest from Manchester United um, come about whenever you were at Torquay? Well, I, I had no idea about it. I played for Torquay, I don't know, two or three times. Uh, and I've heard since through different scouts and different people have told me that Cyril Knowles was the manager who was an ex-Tottenham left-back. Uh, nice one, Cyril. The old song was was about him. Unbelievable left foot, unbelievable player. Left-back he was. Phenomenal player. Evening training, at, I don't know, he must have been 50, around about 50 when he was at Turkey, late 40s. Still by far and away the best player. Unbelievable touch. Nutmegged everybody. Uh, and it, obviously he'd come from Tottenham, so he'd rang Tottenham. And I heard that Tottenham were coming down to watch the next game after Alex Ferguson had been. But someone rang, I think it was an ex-reporter that retired down there and rang Fergie and said, need to come watch this kid. And he came straight down and watched me on a, in a Friday night game. And then after the game on the Friday night, Cyril Knowles and the club secretary came around the peak. It was about half one tell, in the morning. Tell us a story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is his story when he does his after dinner speaker. He's brilliant. <laughs> Macy's crying already. <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm, I'm laying my, my bed in my digs. And um, I was actually sharing a room with a Scottish kid that was a year older than me. Tommy Smith, I think his name, Scottish lad there, centre forward. And there's a, there's a knock on my door, half one in the morning, landlady's mate. Uh, I don't know where you've been or what you've been doing, but the manager and club secretary are downstairs. They want to see you straight away. So I'm sort of panicking as a 16-year-old kid. Get myself into the dining room. They sit me down. They said, son, we've just been driven around Torquay. 
for the last hour and a half in the back of a Jaguar with Alex Ferguson and Archie Knox. They're not leaving Torquay till they shake your hand in the morning. They want to take you to Manchester United. So I was sort of gobsmacked and I had no idea that anyone was watching me. That I mean, at this point, it's, it's like March time. I'd made my debut in the October and, and I'd come on at half time or last half an hour in, I think it was the FA Cup against Tottenham at White Hart Lane in the, in the November. And then I hadn't really played or been involved. They left me out for, for a couple of months. And then I was in and out of the team and played at home now and again. Uh, got put sub away from home. So I hardly played. And uh, so then the manager and secretary left and, and I walk into the, the living room and in the living room is the landlady, the landlady's mate and, and one of the players from Tokyo is this big Scottish centre forward, Dave Caldwell, absolute raging nutter. So aggressive. Just wanted to fight the world. But a lovely bloke off the pitch. Uh, said, oh, what? Who's in for you? I said, well, how do you know? It's two o'clock in the morning. Manager and secretary not coming around unless it's important. I said, well, it's Manchester United. He said, right, got a bit of advice for you. He said, you go up there and you ask for this, this and this. He said, they don't give you that. You ask for this, this and this. He said, they don't give you that. You ask for this, this and this. They don't give you that. Forget it. Just sign anyway. (laughs) 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 Cheers, Dave. <laughs> Good advice. That's great. That's brilliant advice. Brilliant really advice. advice. Surely it's quite unusual that Sir Alex Ferguson was down there and you had no idea that Manchester United were interested. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if they if they were playing a game in London or there was some charity game or centenary game or something at Wembley, and it, he, he drove straight across from uh, from London to to Torquay to come and watch us. And how far is that? Sorry, I don't even know how far that is. Oh, it's uh, oh, quite it's a track. It's a good three, four hours. Three, four three hours. hours. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And he and he just said to me, "Look, you've got." He said, "You, I know you're a little bit skinny at the moment." He said, "But you've got good shape athletically about you." He said, "You'll fill out nicely as an athlete." He said, "You're quick." He said, "You took a couple of whacks and got beat up by the fullback, but didn't seem to bother you. Just sort of kept going." He said, "So you're brave enough." He said, "So we'll take you up there, put you in the reserves, look after you for a couple of years." Your pace and power will help the youth team, and without the reserves, so um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see where we go from there. So that was that was about it. Really, went up and that was a Saturday morning. I met him. I had to go up the next morning and meet him. Wow! And that's what Sir Alex said to you. Yeah. So yeah. presumably, you didn't expect after what being at the club three four months, you'd be playing for the first team. Well, no, I, I was expecting a year, a year or two to learn my trade, and uh, funnily enough, I, I, I played twenty minutes in a pre-season friendly. So I signed on the 1st of July. By the time the start of August had come, I played 20 minutes against Aberdeen to, at Torquay. Uh, and then they sent me home in the October because they thought I was looking homesick. Sent me home for a week. Uh, and after three days, I think I was at, back at school, I went to see my games teacher just to chat about how it was going. And Because people were dropping like flies. The apprentices were leaving because training was that hard. People were throwing up every day, hill climbs. And so I went home and I was sat at school and I had a phone call th- come through to the school saying, uh, you need to go back to Torquay. They need you in the squad for, for the game at the weekend, which was Exeter in a local derby. And I came on last 20, 25 minutes, did quite well, then played Tottenham a week or two later. We beat Tottenham at home uh, the week before that, 1-0, and then went to Tottenham and played them in the second the second leg of the, I don't know, it was League Cup or FA Cup, and got stuffed 3-0. But I, play, I played at Tottenham. Uh, I came on with about 20 minutes, 25 minutes to go, I think. Gary Stevens, the old England fullback, was playing right back. And I, and I was chatting to the games teacher before I went back. Uh, I, I, I called him I said oh listen I, I played on Saturday and, and I think I might be involved against Gary Stevens at Tottenham he went oh you can skin him he said not a problem I was like he's the England fullback he went doesn't matter you can skin him I went oh right okay. <laughs> no pressure <laughs> so I ended up nutmegging Gary Stevens during the game and then the centre half I think it was Gary Mabbott come out and, and sort of put the ball out of play 
And as I've turned around to sort of go and get the ball from the crowd and all that, Ozzy Ardiles has run over and given me a double-handed shove in the back and went, you, no, 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 not Meg, too young. <laughs> I went, oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's not a thing. <laughs> not in a London. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> did you think when you went up to Manchester and they sent you home they said you looked a bit homesick did you feel homesick did you find that difficult yeah I mean it was quite difficult I mean I was I was always a pretty homely lad so so to move 300 miles away from I was 16 is quite difficult I, I mean I, I dropped fortunate that I had really good digs there was a Scottish couple I lived with uh, with two kids that were they were lovely two two other apprentices stayed there as well so that no, was it was great digs I probably was missing home a little bit um, but the three or four days I had at home and then coming back to playing the first team so, sort of made made up for it. Do you still keep in touch with your landlady? Yeah, yeah, still speak to her again, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, now she's lovely. Everybody does, don't they? We, I don't think we've had anybody who said, no, I'm not in touch anymore. Yeah, I spoke to me, um, landlady's son, surreal. He, he must have been about, I was a blackbird, he must have been about nine or ten. I, I had three kids in, in my digs. But yeah, kept in touch. Brilliant. Yeah, that was great. Without without those digs, I'm not sure it would have worked for me. I, I had a mate go down that played for our Sunday league team and he was in different digs and his digs were horrendous and he, and he jacked it. By the time Christmas come, he went home. He said, I can't do it. I've had enough and went home. Wow. wow. So one thing we should mention is when you left Torquay and joined United, you left for a record fee for a YTS player of £200,000. Did that for you bring a lot of pressure or did it make you feel a bit of pride? I weren't really bothered, to be fair. I, I, I don't know. I think uh, £200,000, I suppose, for a YTS is a lot of money, but in general terms of, of buying and selling people at Manchester United is not a lot. Uh, I'm sure the money meant a lot to Torquay. Uh, but like, as, as I say, at the time, I'm sort of fresh out of school, having been let go by all the Midlands clubs. I've been at a fourth division club where we've been doing, we use our own training kit. So the training kit would only get washed once a week. So you'd have smelly, sticky kit on. We'd be picking tie-ups up after the game and putting them over a, hot water pipe to dry them out for the game after for the first team you know it was it was proper old school pub, yeah. football if you yeah. like yeah we, we, we were taking the kit down to the laundrette as apprentices to wash the kit after the day after the game and then I got to Old Trafford and you've got your own squad number and your own kit wrapped in a towel and fresh morning and afternoon in pre-season and seven restaurants in the in the ground and a canteen at the club and it was just on a on another level and, and I I got there and just didn't think I was good enough the first day I turned up there uh, I went up for a couple of days before the end of the season. We played, Torquay played Newport at home uh, on the Tuesday. On the Wednesday, I got the train up to Manchester. Uh, I had two days training and then we were playing Tranmere on the Saturday. So the manager took me over to, to the hotel where Torquay was staying on the Friday night. I remember to, going out to train with the reserves on the first day. I got there on the Wednesday and these lads are zipping balls around and pinging balls and bringing it down with the outside of the foot around their head and just controlling it like, like velvet. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? I should not be here. I don't deserve to be here. I'm just not this good. Uh, and it was just a, a shock to the system. And uh, it, it was really, when I first got there, it was a massive learning curve. <laughs> massive. Who was you in digs with? Well, we were in digs with, uh, there was a woman called Brenda. It was, it was a lovely woman who just across, across the road, there was a road just across from the, the cliff. Just up there on the left, she had uh, two Victorian townhouses sort of thing that were not, she had a, a, a hole, a doorway, knocked through the two of them. So she lived one side, and loads of lads lived the other. So there's about ten or twelve of us oh, in the house, and we had people like uh, a room with Sean Gota. Gota was my roommate. We had Lee Costa, Sean McCauley, Craig Lawton. We had we had a few in there. I can't remember all the names now. Jesus, who else did we have in there? 
for the ten of us, it was like feeding Tom the zoo. As soon as she put the food out on the table at night, it was just like <laughs> a swarm of locusts just coming in and then just bones and empty plates left everywhere. It was ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, Diggs was Diggs was good. It's a learning curve, you know. And Sean Goats, my roommate, was hilarious. Winter time, we had that. We had, we had the downstairs room, which would have been in the house originally. Would have been like a, a living room or a dining room or whatever. So we had two single beds in there and a gas fire. And I'd come back from a game late at night and he'd have two pairs of tracky bottoms on, thermal gloves, two hoodies, a woolly hat, <laughs> gas fire on, four bars, sat there like that, freezing, it's freezing. I'm like, Jesus Christ, like a sauna in the room. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, was, he was hilarious. He was hilarious. You're, you joined United at, what, 16, 17. Sir Alex tells you, or Alex Ferguson, I guess, as he was then, tells you, we're going to put you in the reserves. We'll see what happens. But in September at 17, you make your debut. And through that season, you play 30 times. How did that feel? Uh, it, was, it was a bit scary because I'd obviously gone there as a left winger. Had a, had a bit of an indifferent sort of pre-season, if you like. And then I think they had a few injuries at left back and left wing. And we played a practice game at the training ground. And Brian Morehouse, the reserve team manager, said, listen, just play left back for the last 20 minutes of this game. Just show the manager what you can do. Because the manager was obviously watching first team versus reserves. Obviously, did all right. And then on the on the Friday, he sort of asked me, I started training with the first team. He said, oh, are you feeling? I was like, yeah, yeah, fine. Uh, and then played on the Saturday. Well, actually, I played on the Wednesday night. Uh, there was a centenary game against Newcastle at Old Trafford. Actually went into injury time. So I played two hours on the on the Wednesday night and then played on the Saturday against West Ham. And basically, it was just get the ball, make sure you control it and pass it five yards to Brian Robson. And that's pretty much what I did for... <laughs> Ninety minutes. <laughs> <laughs> did uh, did Sarek say anything afterwards? No, he just said he just said well done. <clears throat> Obviously, I wasn't I wasn't a left back. I'm not a natural defending left back. Uh, and, then, and then a couple of a couple of games down the road, I think uh, we played Southampton. Matt Letizia got in behind me uh, and scored a goal, so he, he he rolled me for that. Then went and played Tottenham away from home, and someone else got in behind me, and I, and I brought him down in the box and. They ended up getting a penalty from it, which they went on and hit the crossbar with a mist. So, so I sort of got away with that one. But uh, that was that was probably the start of my uh, hair dryers from the manager. <laughs> Seventeen. <laughs> what was the What was the first one like? How did you feel when it was happening, or even afterwards? Well, the first one, you just sort of think, "Oh, well, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, part of it." Part of me thought, "Well, I'm, I'm playing out of position. I'm going to make mistakes, and if that's if, if I can not make that mistake again, then it won't happen again." But it, it just happens all the time <laughs> forever <laughs> for, a number, for a number of reasons 30 appearances in your um, debut season but no goals did you feel disappointed about that? no you didn't feel under pressure? no I was, I was playing left back so um, but for you who'd naturally scored goals before did you think even though I'm playing left back like maybe I should be well I, I was just at 17 I was just sort of happy to be in the team and happy to be finding my feet yeah uh, I think as a Playing fullback is one of the easiest positions to play from a perspective that most of the game's in front of you and you've got a lot of people around you to help you. You've got a centre-half next year. You've got Brian Robson, centre-field, just in front of you. And, and a winger, I had Jasper Olsen, sort of just in front of me on the left. So, so basically, it was just stick to basics and not do anything wrong rather than go and sort of, I don't know, go and express yourself and, and do what you can. It was just getting the team and just keep your head down don't get anything wrong. Don't give the ball away and just get through it. What was it like um, playing alongside Robbo? I know you've just said there, just give the ball to Robbo, but we've, we've had loads of people on the podcast and they say, Robbo, by far, best player. Yeah, he was He was just, 
he just seemed to be on another level. He just knew, you know, you know what it's like, mate. When, when you when you're in the game, it, to to sit in a stand and to watch a game, you can see everything. You can see every bit of space. You can see yeah. where everyone's moving. And when you're in amongst it, it's hard to see things because there's bodies all around you. But Robson just seemed to have this overlook on on everything and knew where everything was knew where where we were getting attacked, where we were attacking other teams, where they were weak, where we were strong, knew what sort of pace the game needed to play at, what the game needed at any particular time. And I always just was composed and had time and helped you out, stood close to you when you were struggling, give you room when he knew you were when you knew you were playing well and you could you could get on with it. He just knew everything about everybody and, and everything about the game. He was just on, on another level. There's one game in there where he looked after you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, that was Tottenham again at Old Trafford, and Paul Stewart's done me early. I'm on the edge of the box and pass the ball back to the keeper, and Paul Stewart's put his studs right down the back of my ankle. And, and to be fair, that the manager was big into if, if a young lad, even even later on when I was playing regular, there was myself, Giggs, and Konchelskis were probably the only three players that couldn't kick anybody back and, and sort of hurt him if you like. We had a team full of aggressors and just wanted to fight people as much as play football. And uh, and the manager was big into us us being looked after. And especially young lads getting in the team. And Paul Stewart's put his studs down me, down the back of my ankle. And Robson's gone, you're all right, kid? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, come on then, let's get this game going. And about 10 minutes later, get, uh, Paul Stewart's got this ball. Little trickly balls come into him in the centre circle and Brian Robson's just gone straight to him. He's gone straight through him from ankle height to about waist high. With a forearm <laughs> smashed to the throat. Paul Stewart's gone horizontal. <laughs> landed on the deck, mostly crying, getting carried off. And Robson's just turned around to me and winked and gone, Okay, oh, yes, I am. He's <laughs> <laughs> just a master doing people. Brilliant. At what point in your first season did you start to feel like you belonged at Manchester United? Because you said when you I first didn't. got to training, you still didn't. No, we, we got as well um, at the at the cliff where we trained. We had three dressing rooms. So it was a first team dressing room, a reserve dressing room, and a YTS or youth team dressing room. So I got changed in the reserve team dressing room. And stayed there for the first two seasons, I'd, stay, I'd say. So although I was playing in the first team, I was still getting changed for training in the reserve team dressing room. I was still knocking around with the reserves. The, the first, when I first got there, I think the reserves I was knocking around with were like Mark Robbins, uh, Daniel Graham, Beardo, Lee Martin. Uh, so, so these sort of people, Wayne Bullimore, Paul Ratton. So it wasn't for a couple of years that I got into the, the first team dressing room. So it wasn't until I got to 19 that I really started to feel part of part of being the first team. I always felt I was a reserve team player coming into the first team to do a job and then to go back into my normal habitat of being in the reserves. I suppose you probably just felt more comfortable being in the reserve dressing room at that time, probably because of your age as well. Yeah, I think so. And I think I probably still felt my standard was a reserve player, but just because I was quick and left-footed and they were struggling with numbers left-sided as far as left-backs and left-wingers that I got, it's all about timing, isn't it? And we had a short. I think Colin Gibson, who was our regular left back, got injured, so so I, I got my chance. Oh, you took it. Fortunately, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, following season, you got your first goal. What did that feel like? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was uh, in front of the strep friend Millwall. I think we won five nil or five one. The, the the only embarrassing bit was the celebration. I went to. It was when the strep friend was standing, so it was like electric. The strep friend, and I ended up scoring in the strep. I think it's just sort of ricocheting. I mean, it took me with my right foot. Going in the bottom corner, and uh, I've gone to slide in front of the strep, but then it was a bit dry. 
That could have been a cruciate. <laughs> oh, uh, was that your only dodgy celebration? Uh, I'd say there's been a few, to be fair. If you, if you ask the manager, every celebration was a dodgy celebration. <laughs> How many times when you're out do you get asked about the Sharpie Shuffle? It must be at least once a week. Oh, every time. Every I do have the dinner speaking now and every dinner speaking event I go to, it's like, you're going to do the shuffle, you're going to do the shuffle. I'm like, I was 19 when I did that shuffle. I'm nearly 50. It doesn't quite work the same. <laughs> what did the gaffer say to you? He came me. He absolutely nailed me. Um, that's when I was, uh, I'd scored the Aptric at Ivory on the Tuesday. Yeah. And I didn't really do anything there. I just slid on my knees, did a forward roll, didn't really do anything outrageous. Then got to Everton on the Saturday and scored the winner against Everton. It was a ricochet, come, come off Sparky, one of the centre halves. And I just side-footed it bottom corner. And I did this stupid little sort of shuffle thing right in front of that. And, and he watched it on the telly after the game. So we come straight on the coach and walk straight up the coach. I'm thinking, he's not happy considering we've won. Who's, who's he going to have a go at here? <laughs> <laughs> Frothing at the mouth. And I'm thinking, geez, he's going to chin someone here. And I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking around behind me. I'm like, can't be honest, the old, that's the... Senior boys in the card school, he's not going to have a go at them. Straight to me, straight in my seat like that, over me like that, about there. What was all that carrying after you scored? Who do you think you are? Get your feet on the floor. Come and see me Monday morning. I'll have a word with you. None of that carrying on, you little this, little that, you little that. I'm sliding down my seat on the coach like that. The air's getting blown over there because the air dry's hitting me. And I, thought, I thought I'd done well as well, four in a week, and he just came like, did you, did you have to go see him on the Monday? Yeah, he just pulled me in and said, listen, stop doing that. I was like, yeah, whatever. You continue it. <laughs> the Elvis, I know the corner flags. Yeah, I did, I did the Elvis. I did a bit of Three Amigos one. I did little Swing Your Pants one. I did I did all sorts of rubbish. Did they? Uh, were they spontaneous? Yeah, most of the time. And sometimes I'd mess about in the house and <laughs> just do something and then something would, something would come off the back of a thought or someone would say something. Uh, it just depended in... I just thought, you know what, I don't score many. Uh, and, and as a young man, how often do you get to score in front of a... Packed Old Trafford. Crowd, crowd going wild. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen that often. I'm going to enjoy my 30 seconds. And Do you think you've started a trend now, Sharpie? Because everybody's doing these sorts of celebrations. Like, they're all practising them in changing rooms these days, aren't they? Yeah. You're ahead of the time. I, I just think it's... Uh, you know, I think, I think you've got to remember, as, as much as money has taken over football, you've still got to remember you're in the entertainment industry and people pay to come and be entertained and and, and feel part of it. And I just thought, you know, if I was a kid of 12 or 13 in the old end and I saw Gary Shaw rip one into the back of the net and he'd come over and do a little dance, oh my God, what would I be doing on Sunday when I played football? (laughs) That's that's the sort of connection you have. And I just just felt that it was a bit of fun for the fans. And don't get me wrong, I didn't do it. I just scored with 3-1 down. Yeah, yeah. Like, equalise us all winners. So, yeah, it was worth the celebration. Did the boss continue to tell you off for them? Yeah, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he had another go at me about another one, and then I just thought, do you know what? If, you, if you're gonna have a go at me when I play bad, and you're gonna have a go at me when I play good, then what's the point of me listening to you? So, I think we went to Villa actually, uh, and I scored a it was a little scruffy tapping. And right in front of our fans again, travelling fans. I've done this sort of three amigos or whatever it was, and, I, and I've got in the shower after. And Archie Knox come up to me and went, <laughs> he went, do you know what? I've just had to chase the manager down the track 
because he was after you. He was going to chew you <laughs> while you were doing that celebration. <laughs> I just had to pull him back. He was 30 yards <laughs> down the track after you. I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> what was your relationship like with Sir Alex Ferguson? Or Alex Ferguson then? Uh, it, it wasn't It wasn't great. He just... Uh, he didn't think I took... The thing is, I've, I've never... I've never been a serious person, you know. I've, I've always smiled. I've always thought, whatever you can do, as good as you can do, you can do it just as well with a smile on your face as you can with a scowl or aggression on your face. And and I just think because I smiled a lot and laughed a lot, the manager didn't think I took the game serious. But I was I was actually speaking to a psychologist the other day, and he said you need to play when you're playing any sport at a high competitive level. You need to play it like it's a game, like a child plays it. And if you try and take a toy off a kid that's enjoying himself. You know how focused, how serious, how concentrated they are on that toy and on that task in hand, and I, and I think that's that was me. I, I needed to play and be relaxed and do it with a smile on my face to be able to see everything and to be able to for my body to be relaxed, for my touch, for my balance, for everything else. I couldn't go out aggressive and tight, and and I just think he didn't think I took it serious, whereas I did, but it just didn't show on the outside, and I, and I don't think he ever really got that did you ever speak about that though no he, he never apart from finding me telling me I was fine and, and <laughs> telling me off and he never really spoke to me how many Christmas do did you pay for that <laughs> and that well yeah I think the uh, I think the players pulled money uh, I think every Christmas do I paid for to be honest <laughs> what's your relationship like with him now if you if you see him at things oh it's even worse <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure like lots of ex-players meet Sir Alex Ferguson now and still well firstly they call him the boss don't they and they probably still do have that little bit of fear uh, yeah I, I, I've been fearful of him from day one getting to Old Trafford to today whatever it was when I left uh, and when I left it sort of all went I, I just wasn't bothered anymore very honest uh, but things were done differently then you know management styles were different players were treated different it's a whole different psychology trip now and a whole different way of coaching and the way of treating people and players I was, I was I was put into an old school management system with with old school players that went out for a drink after they played that had a team spirit that was predominantly British so everybody knew everybody's wives and kids and everybody knocked around together so it was a it was a totally different era so it was one of the reasons that I left the club in the first place because I, I felt at times I needed help in my game because I wasn't playing well and I wasn't getting any help I wasn't getting you know, you're struggling with this, so we'll work on this in training. You're not doing this too well, so we'll do this in training. It was just doing, you're not doing this, you're not doing this. Sort it out when you're out of team and that was, that's it. That's that's the management I got. You won seven trophies at United, but a, a big, I'm sort of jumping ahead, so we'll, we'll have to go back, but a big part of your life there was that you were one of the early figures uh of the Premier League in terms of sort of the poster boys whose social lives were examined off the pitch. And that doesn't happen so much now because like the players that are playing today know what's happened in the past. They've seen people like David Beckham being followed everywhere he goes and they don't want that life and they don't want their, their public lives put in the paper. So they're much more uh, used to the concept of it than how to handle it. Whereas for you, it's all brand new. And also you talk about the culture at the club and how your mindset worked. How do you think your career would have panned out if you'd started playing, like say if you'd just retired today or you, if you were playing now? Do you feel like your career would have gone completely differently? Yeah, yeah, it would have had to because circumstances are different. You know, I, I got 
I got hair dried and told off by the manager for having a mobile phone uh, as a as a 17-year-old kid. I got told off for driving an MR2 and a, and a Suzuki Jeep when I was 18. <laughs> that's what we could afford and, and we, that's all we could afford and all we could afford the insurance of. You know, it was, it was like to, to drive a Mercedes as an 18-year-old back then was, was going to cost you as much in insurance as it was for the car. So we had to buy low-powered, cheap cars and uh, it's just a different... It's a different era. We had we had no social media. We had if people was going if people someone was going to take a photo of you, it wasn't going to be slyly on a phone. People were going to come up with a camera, and you're going to see the flash. There was no social media. There was no the, the worst thing that would happen would be, I suppose, the worst thing that happened to me was an undercover news of the world reporter that, come, that comes up and starts chatting to you when you've had a few beers and you're a little bit loose lipped and a little bit full of bravado. But other than that, you're not going to get sly when we played. No mobile phones and no social media with millions of people slagging you off because you got a Bacardi and Coke in your hand and you should be drinking water. So it would be different. And if I played and was just finishing today, then I would I would know the game that's being played. I would know social media, people are around. You would play social media to your advantage as well as to your detriment. So but like you say, kid, they don't go out. People, Kids don't go out these days drinking and swanning around. And that's maybe why you don't get such a team spirit like, like we had. You played a key part in the success in the European Cup Winners Cup in nineteen ninety one. What was that like? Yeah, that was that was a that was a phenomenal. I mean, that was the first year back for for British clubs after Heysel. So we'd had a five year ban, and we got there from from winning the FA Cup the year before. So so the FA Cup was a huge stepping stone for for the bunch of players and the team and the club. Uh, and then to go and win the Cup, cup Winners Cup final was was unbelievable. You know, to to go away from home anywhere in Europe at the time and I know you can look at some of the teams we played and they weren't sort of European greats if you like but for us I think we went to a place called Honved in, in Hungary somewhere uh, and the grass was about three inches long and it was all bobbly and it was horrendous conditions we went to Montpellier which was an unbelievable tight little ground an unbelievable atmosphere so to go away on, on these European excursions and, and go and get results away from home was, was fantastic and then to play Barcelona in the final Kuman, Romario, Stoichkov was uh, and beat them with with Les Sealy, who pretty much only had one leg, uh, and, and we all we all sort of vowed that we were going to play deep and look after him. That, that was the sort of thing we, we went into that cup final, making sure we were going to look after our goalkeeper, uh, and we were going to go out and win the game, and, and that's exactly what we did. It was incredible. The, the celebrations after the um, the cup winners' cup. Yeah, they were they were mental. We we, uh, we stayed in uh, we stayed in Rotterdam, stayed in a hotel. We obviously had a, a huge party in the hotel straight away after the game. All the reserves and, and youth team players had all come over a couple of nights before. I think they'd all had a couple of nights in Amsterdam, so, so they were already ready for the party, if you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, but, the, but the party went until, I think I went to bed at six in the morning uh, and there was still Started. half a dozen lads still down there. Mick, Mick Hutnell had come and joined us and sat at our table and, and done a little bit. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it was incredible. It was just non-stop. I mean, the, the, the hotel, we had, we had our own games room with pinball machines and table tennis tables like they, like they do now and huge party. And it was, it was incredible, incredible. How, uh, how good and how much did you enjoy those kind of events? What, the parties after? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they, were, they were good. I mean, uh, do you know, I've, I have to say, I've, Maisie will probably mock me here, but I've never really been a big drinker. I've had to learn how to drink and practice how to drink so that you don't fall over after an hour of being with some of the biggest drinkers I've ever known. <laughs> so so I, I, I don't mind a drink and I quite like a drink, and, but, but I, like it. I like a place to sit and chat. 
and, and, and sometimes it's a bit difficult when you've had a few points and you're a bit worse for wear and some of the other lads are still looking like they've not even started to, to have a decent conversation. Uh, there's, there's many a times I've tried to drink with Brian Robson and been put in the back of a cab very, very ill. So uh, I, I was never a big drink like the others. But, but yeah, I, I, like, I, like a, I like a night out. I don't, I don't want a night out. But um, yeah, it was, they, were, they were messy nights. So 90-91 was a great, great season. 91-92, that's when Ryan Giggs started to emerge on the scene. Had you seen a lot of him in the youth team? Yeah, we, we knew we knew Giggs he was about. There was always high expectation for him. His, his name was was quite well known around the club. And we knew it was just a matter of time before he came into the team. So uh, there, there was no no surprise when he came in. Ex- exactly the same for, for the class of 92. Bex was around the dressing room from probably being 12 or 13. We'd play in London. Bex would be around the dressing room with his dad. Uh, he'd be around the dressing room in, in, in Manchester. Uh, so the... The lads of uh, the, the senior boys, the likes of Bruce Robson, you know, McClare, Pallister, Schmeichel, all took an interest in the younger lads and, and who was coming through and, and what we'd got at the club. And uh, so, so we knew everything about everybody. And, and Giggsy was no different. We, we knew he was a special talent and it was only a matter of time before he started playing. Did it feel unfair that, so Ryan Giggs, you know about him, he comes in, he starts playing on the left wing. The rest is history for him, isn't it? And then, so you go out to the right, start doing really well. And as you say, a few years later, then David Beckham comes out. <laughs> uh, well, that, that's just that's just part of being at a club like Manchester United. You know, it's, I, I got to the club, Jasper Olsen and Gordon Strachan with the wingers, who were unbelievable. Then uh, Danny Wallace came in, Ralph Mill came in for a little bit, I think more to, to help me as help me to, to get into the team, really. Andre Kinchowski's come on the right. Then you've got myself, Giggsy, Bex. Uh, so, so it's just it's just a, a, a conveyor belt of top quality players, and you know that you can't just put your beach towel down and put your ombre solaire on and just cruise through and, and play in your own position. You're always going to have <laughs> some worldie that's going to uh, going to come in and, and try and take your place, and that's just what it's like being at a club like that. Did you feel threatened by that? No, because there's always someone in your position. If it's not Ryan Giggs, yeah. it's Danny Wallace. If it's not Danny Wallace, it's it's someone else. So, so, you know, you just know you've got to perform every week. And if you play, the, the thing that, that, that sort of did my head in a little bit was I'd play well and then get left out, which is crucifying. If you're playing well and you stay in the team and someone else gets in the team, you get injured and someone else gets in the team and they're playing well, you don't begrudge anyone. You don't wish someone to have a bad game. You just know that, that form always goes up and down and you know you're going to get your chance one way or another, whether it's injury, whether it's form. If you're coming in a different position, you're going to get back in the team somehow. So, so as long as you're playing well, if you don't play well for a few games, then fine, you sort of hold your hands up and go, yeah, okay. But if, if you're playing well and you're getting left out, or you play poorly for half a game or one game and then you're getting left out, it's a little bit diff- difficult when other, other players are getting different terms and, and conditions for them to play. Yeah, I suppose that would feel less fair. Yeah, that, you know, if someone, like I went to Leeds and Harry Cole. I got injured and Harry Cole was number one left winger and, and then I had seven, eight, nine bad games and I still wasn't getting another go. Uh, and then you start thinking, well, hang on a minute, I have one or two bad games and I get left out. He's having eight or nine and I'm still not getting a chance to come in. So that's when you start questioning the manager's judgment, whether it's fair. That's when attitudes and arguments start to happen and, and that's that's just, I don't know, how, how it seems to work. So you in those situations... You are still able to keep your personal relationships. So, like Ryan Giggs, for example, did you manage to? Were you still sort of friends, even though 
you were direct competition for places. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Giggsy came into the team and I'd been in the team for a couple of years. And when Giggsy first made his first couple of games, I think I think I was sub. Uh, and I had the mickey taken out of me in the dressing room by by Brucey and, and Robbo and a couple of the others. That I'm a 19-year-old lad and I'm there trying to give Giggsy a little bit of advice <laughs> as, as how to play. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this is how you take people on, this is what you do, this is what you do. I'm just saying, listen, just give yourself 10 minutes to get a feel for the ball, get a first touch. Don't try and dribble past six as soon as you get it. Just get yourself up to the speed of the game, make a couple of short passes, get a couple of good touches in, and then just go rip someone. You'll, you'll absolutely clean up. Just go and enjoy yourself, but just make sure you give yourself 10 minutes before you turn into the world beater that you are. And I'm, I'm being, and, and the manager come around and said, I like that, I like that. Whereas Bruce and Robson are like, look at these two here. <laughs> <laughs> just, just left school and like jetting to a season pro. <laughs> what was it like, Sharpie, to win the first Premier League title? We've spoken to players previously and they talked about the pressure that was that they felt was off them when that happened. How did how did you feel at that time? Yeah, it was it was more of a relief than than a sort of celebration. I think I think because we'd lost the league the year before to Leeds and blown it a little bit because we were in a dominant position, we were, we were the better team, and we got nervous. And you could see it in our performances and we ended up losing the title. So Brownoff was sort of stood up and, and, and did his speech and this is what we'll do. You do this, you do this, you do this. We'll do our jobs. We'll get this league won. And we won't have what happened last year. Wow. We went on and won it. And I think it was more relief than real sort of joyous celebration. I think it was just like, right, that's, that's that mm-hmm. monkey off our back. Now we can go and, and enjoy ourselves and express ourselves. It was, uh, it was unbelievable. I'm assuming by that time you really felt part of the team. Uh, no, not really. Really? Well, it's, it's, it's funny because we played a game, we were playing Blackburn the last game, and for some reason it seemed to get dark. I can't remember. Was it a Sunday night we played the last game? I can't even remember. When you won the league? Yeah. We played Blackburn at home, didn't we? Were you playing for Blackburn then, Maisie? I was in a stand. I was at, that's when I was in a car crash the day before, so I missed uh, out. Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so we played Blackburn on the Sunday Sunday afternoon. On the Saturday, Villa have played Oldham, Oldham and, and been beat by Oldham, which means we won the league. So on the Saturday, my mum and dad are around the house and, and they're driving, I don't know where they were driving home or where, where they were going. I know, I can't remember the state for the game or where it was. But, but I'm jumping up and down on the couch at home because I'm watching the game on the table. We won the league, won the league. I'm like, well, what, what, do we, what do we do now? <laughs> So I'm trying to ring a couple of the lads and all the phones are engaged and on the phones. I can't get hold of anybody. So my dad said, there'll be something happening at Old Trafford. Let's just go down there and see what's happening. <laughs> so I pulled down to Old Trafford. There's about 400 people there all singing and dancing in the car park. So I jump out and I'm singing and dancing. They start getting me on the shoulders and throwing me in the air. And I'm thinking, right, this is getting quite dangerous. And then within about <laughs> within about 15 minutes, there's about 2,000 people there and I'm getting mobbed, my gear's getting ripped off, I'm getting thrown in the air. <laughs> got the security guards turn up and, and ship me into the ground. My mum and dad go and get the car. We drive around to the other end of the, the ground. My mum and dad go and pick me up at the other end. I'm still trying to get all the lads. Can't, can't get another. All, all the phones are engaged. I have no idea what's going on. So I sit at home twiddling my thumbs. My mum and dad think I have no idea what's going on here. At 10 o'clock, I end up getting through one of the lads. They're having a party at Bruce's. They're all steaming. So I drive over to Bruce's. They're all steaming, singing, dancing. There's champagne getting fizzed everywhere. And I'm stone cold sober. So I have like one beer. I drive home. Don't think nothing of it. We get to the game the next day. He's like, right, lads, go out there. I know you had a bit of a party. I'm the only one sober. He says, I know you had a bit of a party. Go out there. Uh, don't disappoint me. 
You've got a load of fans that have come here to celebrate winning the league. Don't let them down. One of you will be coming off at half-time so that Brian Robson can get on. And straight away, I thought, I wonder who that is. At half-time, I get bought off so Brian Robson can... I knew straight away. So, so straight away, I'm thinking, I'm already scapegoating coming off. I know that. And I'm the only one sober. I'm the only one that's not broke the rules. So, so I, I don't know whether I did still feel part of the team or not. Do you think that during your time as a player, you would have benefited from speaking to somebody about psychology and stuff like that? Because it's very much part of the game now. Do you think that's something that you might have missed out on? Without shadow of a doubt. I mean, my, my best mate at the time was a golfer. We, he was a, into a bit of psychology. We used to talk about it all the time. Uh, and then when I got to Leeds, I was actually injured for a spell with Richard Jobson. And I ended up talking to Richard Jobson. Uh, and he said he had two women came in and do a psychology course while he was at Oldham. Uh, if you remember, Oldham got to the semi-final with, uh, against United uh, when they were doing this psychology course. And this, he said, these two women came in. He said, some of the lads are into it, some of them weren't. He said, but we went on like a 15-game unbeaten run with these two women. He said, got beaten in the semi-final of the FA Cup by United. And Joe Royal went, right, that's it. The two psychologists are going. That's it. He said, when they left, we didn't win another game and they got relegated. Wow. No so I went and paid to do the psychology course with this woman while I was at Leeds. So I actually put myself through. I'm, 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 I've always been into sort of psychology and yeah. thought and that sort of thing. So. so you feel like that's something that you would have really benefited from back then? And do you think it would have made a difference to your career at Manchester United? Because the way you talk about it, it's, it's quite self, you're quite self-critical about, of, of your time there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of self-deprecating. I think, I think a lot of players and a lot of athletes are like that anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think a psychologist would have helped without a shadow of a doubt. I had a couple of chats. At one point, I had Eric Harrison, the youth team, come up to me, uh, come up to me and said, listen, I know, the, I know he's on your back, but you've got to believe in yourself and trust your own ability and this, that and the other. And I'm not sure if I was a little bit too far down the road with the manager. And I, th- I think my problem was I, I listened to the manager too much and, and let, his, let his voice get in my head. And a lot of time I was going out to please, to, to not upset the manager rather than play for myself and play for Manchester United. I was playing for... Alex Ferguson United uh, and what I was expecting after the game if I didn't play well if I did play well Jim Ryan to be fair to him uh, pulled me and had a little bit of a chat with me but, but I, don't, I don't know whether that was probably a little bit too far down the line as well so I, d- I definitely think a psychologist at the club would have could have changed the course, whole course of things Who was kind of your mentor when you were playing at that time? A lot of people say that Sir Alex is a father figure a lot of people say it's their own fathers <laughs> For you, who would be the person you would have spoken to at the time about troubles that you felt? Uh, just my mate, really. Um, <clears throat> I suppose I Suppose after a few beers, I, I, would, I would maybe chat to Keeney and Pally. Keeney's probably not the best for advice, if I'm honest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Pally's, Pally's pretty sensible and pretty knowledgeable. He's, he's a good chatter, Pally. But my best mate, the golfer, was, was the only person I chatted to. I think my dad, my mum and dad, after every game, I would say, oh, he's just said this to me. He's just said, they're like, oh, He's like a dad. He's just trying to be a dad. He's just like a, a strong-handed dad and he's just trying to get the best out of you. I was like, well, he's not helping me. I'm, I'm not playing good. I don't know why I'm not playing good. I don't know what I'm supposed to do to, to, to start playing good. And no one's. And, and my dad was sort of just... I think my dad, being football obsessed and was just happy that I was there and happy the standard I was at and just mm-hmm. expected me just to hang in there and just keep going and keep going. And, and when you've played well and you've played bad and you don't know how to get to play well again, and you, it's, just, it's just all in your head. It's hard for your dad to give you advice, really. It's a confidence issue, really, then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, massive, yeah. 
just uh, we we spoke about your relationship with Sir Alex Ferguson and also maybe how your career would have been different if you'd played later on. What about if you played later on for him? Because I think he's accepted as someone who has, who changed a lot through his career because Patrice Evra is someone who we've spoken to recently who had a huge personality and a, and a big social media presence and they had an excellent relationship. So do you think that would have, it would have been different if you'd played, I don't know, in the later 2000s, 2010s with Sir Alex than if you'd played for him like you did in the early 90s? Yeah, possibly. Uh, every chance. I think... Uh... I think you can see you can see that in the manager. You know, once you've when he come from Aberdeen and he was turning what a mid a mid table club into a Premier League winning club, it's a different mentality to have than after you've won five or six Premier Leagues and a couple of European Cups. Yeah, you can relax a little bit and give people a little bit more time because you know you've got more wisdom to to show them where they're going and mould them into what you need them to be. And you know, it's not like I ever had a problem with him. In training, I was never late for training. I was always one of the last to leave. I was always at the front of the running. So it was never never like I wasn't turning up to training. I was turning up and, and abusing people or abusing his position. It was just, I, I just lacked confidence at times and he didn't really want to give it to me. And, and when he wasn't giving it to me, I laughed and joked and, and tried to blase it off. Yeah. Rather than sort of crawl up in a ball and go and cry in the corner. So, and, and in that way, he thought I wasn't bothered. I thought he wasn't. Yeah, we both thought neither of us was bothered about each other, so I suppose we just we just distanced ourselves rather than what we should have done is give each other a big cuddle and said, "Listen, I love you. Let's help each other." <laughs> was it difficult then leaving United to go to to go to Leeds? Yeah, it was difficult. It was difficult. I, I love the club. I love Manchester. I love the lads. I, I had a great rapport with the fans. We, we'd been successful. It was it was an amazing place to play home and away you, you, you're playing in front of packed houses and yeah. the atmosphere was always great you're always at the top of the league so your team, the teams that you're playing in are always playing well Can you remember your conversation when that came about that Leeds were interested with a gaffer? Well it was I checked to Keeney and Pally about writing a transfer request out and both of them said no you're stupid don't do it I checked to Keeney and Keeney went listen you don't ask for a transfer request because you lose some of your money and this and the other I'll have a chat with Michael Kennedy my solicitor he'll just ring the manager uh, so Michael Kennedy rang the manager then the manager pulled me in and said listen I know you want to get away and he said you're a, you're a Premier League player you think you should be a regular Premier League player so you, your price price tag will will mirror that yeah and I'd not played too often I'd not played regular the last couple of seasons so I thought he was going to ask for sort of three million three and a half million so when he put five million on my head there was a couple of Spanish clubs interested that, that just sort of jumped out the water straight away because five million was too much Arsenal were interested but weren't giving Bruce Rioch any money to spend. Uh, and then Howard Wilkinson had been given a load of money to rebuild. So but I, I didn't have really a, a lot of options. Didn't he, he got sacked a month after you joined, didn't he? That was a recurring theme that everywhere I went, people got sacked a month after I got there. <laughs> <laughs> it, it happened at Leeds with Howard Wilkinson. It happened at Sampdoria, went on loan with David Platt. He was there a month and he got sacked. I went to Portsmouth on loan with Steve Claridge. After a month, he got sacked and Graham Wicks came in. Uh, so it happened, it happened a few times. Not a good trend to have, that, is it? <laughs> Before you did leave, though, Sharpbreed, there was another um, league title and an FA Cup win. I know that maybe you talk about your time there, you didn't get all the playing time you wanted, uh, but you were a fan favourite. That must have been a nice way to end it for you at the club. Yeah, again, again it was... It was a nice way to end it as, as a player to do a double and to be a fan and, and, and all the rest of it. But that was 
that was the sour ending with with me and the manager really at the end, the end of that season, which is really what what put the nail in the coffin. I'd, I'd played midweek and played centre midfield. I can't remember we played Arsenal, Forest, something like that. We'd won three nil or three one at home. I'd scored a goal. I'd played well, and then we got to Middlesbrough the last day of the season, and the manager said to me, "I'm, I'm leaving you out. Nicky Butt's going to come back into midfield. They've got Janino. He's a little bit more." Nicky Butt's a little bit more defensive-minded. I went, yeah, yeah, that's that's fine, no problem. So I thought I was going to be on the bench. There's only three subs at the time. One of them's obviously a goalkeeper. So there's two two subs places. And then we get to the stadium at, at Middlesbrough and my, my kit wasn't out. So I've asked Brian Kier, I said, kiddo, am I not so? He said, oh yeah, I thought you were. He said, let me just check. And he come back and went, no, no, he said, you're actually not on the bench. So I've gone from playing and playing well and scoring midweek to not even being on the bench. Uh, Steve Bruce was on the bench as captain just to put his kit on because he'd got a snapped hamstring. So he was on the bench just to have his kit on so he could pick the trophy up at the end. And then we, we won the league, we got the trophy. The lads are trailing around the pitch showing the trophy off in the kit and I'm stood in the tunnel with my club blazer on just watching them go around the pitch and, and Bobby Charlton stood me and went, you should be out there. He said, you've helped do this. And I just said to Bobby Charlton, I said, Bobby, I feel a million miles away from it. So let them enjoy themselves. Uh, and then that was on the Sunday, I think, on the Monday. The manager pulled me in and said, listen, I know I upset you on, on Sunday uh, or Saturday, whenever it was. He said, so uh, I'm, I'm going to put your sub in the FA Cup final on Saturday. I said, uh, I really don't give a what you do or say anymore. I said, you've, you've, you've broke my heart. I said, you've left me out after playing well. He said, I'm leaving my captain out on Saturday in the FA Cup. I said, you're not leaving your captain out. I said, your captain's got a snapped hamstring. I said, he can't play. You're not leaving out for me. You're not doing me any favours. I said, you've left, you've put him on the bench instead of me. You can't come on on Saturday, Sunday if you if you get an injury. I said, and I said, you've done it. I said, it's finished. And he went, well, I'm putting you sub anyway. Get out of my office. I went, right, see you later. So that was how it ended. And you were sub as well, weren't you? I was sub for the FA Cup. Yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't get on, but yeah, I was sub. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever have, was that emotional for you? Did you ever express any emotion? To the manager? Just within yourself. Uh, did you ever go home and think and have a little bit of a breakdown about it or how did you cope with that yeah gen- generally my Sunday was my day I'd uh, generally play Saturday go out for a few drinks Saturday night Sunday my mates and my cousin would leave and go back to Birmingham and I'd just lie on the couch staring at the TV not necessarily watching it with just thoughts a washing machine full of thoughts going through my head mm-hmm. good bits about what I've done bad bits how I can change things what I need to do where I'm going what the manager's saying to me, how I'm dealing with it. And then Monday would be start fresh, back to training, try and stay good if I've been good, try and be good again if I was not so good. And that's, that's generally how the cycle went. Maisie, do you know this was going on? Do, uh, do you know what, Sam? You just took the words right out of my mouth there. That's, that's, do you know what, Sharp? You didn't, you didn't even, sh- well, obviously, we're all in our own little bubbles and our little words worlds. But I never knew anything like that the way you were and I would say we was quite close because we used to room together as well occasionally and yet you know you've got these things running around your head and you've only got your mate to, to talk to really because of the the way the gaffer was with you and now I'm finding I, I'm thinking I wish I'd have actually spoken to him now and said how are you mate you okay <laughs> but, well I know but, but Maisie now that's, that's partly my fault because as soon as I'm in company with anybody I, I just I just smile and, and don't worry about my problems. I'm quite happy to, to chat about someone else and yeah. and everybody else. And you know, a, cu- a couple of times I'd, I'd, I'd sit to my mates and he'd say, "Just just go and knock on his door and chat to him and tell him how you're feeling." I'm like, "I can't. 
I cannot go in there. He said, I'll come, I'll come in with you. He said, I'll come and sit in with you. He said, I'm not frightened of him. I, I, I don't have no emotion towards him. He said, so I'll come in with you and just help you through. I was like, no, nah, mate, he's not going to have you in there with me. No. So, and, and we weren't allowed, he, he wouldn't allow us to have agents. So there wasn't an agent I could speak to and say, where am I going wrong? What do I need to do? You know, so. Quite, quite isolating. That's quite powerful stuff, that, not knowing that, you know, to, to, for you to come out and, and say it now, it's like, wow, I, I have no recollection of you being any, because you was, as you say, you are the way you are. You know, you're always laughing. You're, every time I see you now, we're always having a laugh and a joke. But deep down, all these emotions are going through your head. Now and again, he'd say, well done. And that was about it. The, the FA Cup final, Chelsea, when we won 4 now, I think that was a double year as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I was sub and I came on last five minutes or something. What year was that, Chelsea, when we did the double? Uh, 94, 93, 4, was that? 93, 4, yeah. So I'm 20, what more? 23, 24, maybe yeah. 22, 23, 24. And, I, and I, I'd had my first tattoo. I'd had like an Indian, yeah. uh, <laughs> old Indian's head on my shoulder. Inti had had a tattoo. Uh, someone else had had a tattoo and we win the league. I've had it before we've even won the league. He's not seen it. I've not shown it in a way in, in games when we're changing. I've got my back to the peg so he's not seen me tattoo. And then after the after the final, after the final we've done the double, we beat Chelsea 4 and I'm thinking, right, now has got to be the time for him to see the tattoo. So, so we couldn't... We it's the right the time. We, we're coming after the game. He's, he's, he's walking around the dressing room, oh, well done, well done shaking everyone's hand, pat them on the head. He comes to me, I sort of take my shirt off, you're like, well done, shot, well done, shot, take me shirt He went, what the f- hell's that? <laughs> I went, oh, it's a tattoo. He went, can't believe you've done that, you're so f- stupid. <laughs> Nailed me again, I'm like, we just done the double. He let me have a day off. And said nothing to answer. No, nothing, <laughs> nothing to answer. <laughs> so, we want to talk about your retirement because there's some interesting stuff there. But before we do, I want to get one last story from you. Lots of people will know this story, but there will certainly be some people that don't. And I think everyone will enjoy you telling it. It is, of course, your house party with Ryan Giggs. That was Giggs getting me into trouble again. Oh, you always got me into trouble. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've bought a new Barrett or Wimpy or whatever, new build house in, in Altrincham. Giggs is still living at home with his mum. Uh, there's a few apprentices come. Giggsy rings me up. Oh, we'll go out in Stockport Thursday night. We're all right. We don't play till Sunday. We're fine. This and I was like, yeah, yeah, come down. So about ten o'clock, the manager knocks on the door. We think it's a taxi driver. Giggsy's mate answers the door with the only two bottles of beer I've got left in the house from the weekend before. And uh, one of the lads runs upstairs to me. He says, "You never guess what? The manager's downstairs." I'm like, "No, no, he's not. No, he's not." So I'm putting the final touches to my body. He went, "No, no, the manager's downstairs." I went, "You know, you jerk." So I peer over the stairs. The manager's got the scarlet face on with bits of froth in the corner of his mouth. Get these out of this house. I want a word with you in that gigs. Get in that living room. So he's booting everybody out the front door, kicking up the backside, smacking around the back of the head. Absolutely rips into me and gigs. You're finished at this club. You can't edit. You can't pass it. You can't run. Letting your teammates down. Letting your mum and dad down. Letting your family down. And then he's over to gigs doing the same. And you, you're letting your mum down. Letting your family down. Let that, that, that. Married man out there with kids, supporting kids. And you're not bothered. And this, and as he's doing this, I've got a big double door, double doors into a dining room with a big spot set of sparkly drums that fill the dining room. <laughs> and, 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 a, and a big St. Bernard dog that's just trying to melt the gap out. And I was telling me off. Uh, and he's like, 
And he looks up and he goes, and then I'm like, what the f are they? I'm like, drums. I'll give you drums. Oh, God, no. Here we go. <laughs> Just another day in your life at Man United. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. you were thinking. I ran, ran, me, ran me mum and dad up and said, uh, I think I'm getting sacked in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Gigsy again. <laughs> who, who did you have the closest relationship um, with at the club? Uh, knocked around with Gigsy for a little while while we were youngsters, and then sort of knocked around with Pally and Keening. Maisie a little bit when he when he came. As you, I think it was only there for about a year with Maisie. That was season something. Yeah, a couple of years. Yeah, probably Keening and Pally were, were my two close. It's funny you say that you didn't know. Uh, I had a, had a, a gig over in Ireland about six months ago with Pally. And we had a few few beers on the Saturday night before doing a and a before the United-Liverpool game, actually. We were doing something over in Ireland and I was talking to Pally about it and Pally was like, oh my God, Sharp, I never knew that you had these thoughts about the manager and that he affected you that much and what was going on in your head. And I was like, how did you not, Pally? I mentioned it to you a couple of times. Like, I didn't really didn't know. So as I said to him, I said, I think I need cancelling about it. He's <laughs> like, really? I'm like, oh, it just still does me head in. That's because that's because he was on the Malibu and Coke all the time, like you said. Malibu, Malibu and pineapple, big tough centre half. Amazing, and Sharpie. This is for either of you. I wonder if any, but someone else might have picked up on this while they've been listening. Who was in charge of nicknames at the team? Because there was Maisie, Sharpie, Giggsy, Brucey, Pally, Butty, Incy, Keeney. They are so lazy. It's just take a name and add a Y. Who's doing that? Well, that, that's. That's not necessarily the nicknames that we've got for each other. That's just what the outside right, call okay. everyone. <laughs> right. That's what, that's, what yeah. you know, that's what you know everyone has. Okay, yeah, yeah that's a good point. <laughs> oh, I miss all the others. <laughs> when did you finally decide to retire? Because you were 32, weren't you? So quite young still. Yeah, I was. Uh, I think I was playing for Bradford. I'd not been playing that often. And I got into the team. We played Rotherham away from home. And the fullback absolutely kicked 10 barrels of out of me. I got absolutely mothered by this big meathead fullback at Rotherham. And every time I got the ball, I was getting abuse off the Bradford fans, the Rotherham fans. Every fan was abusing me. <laughs> my mum and dad were in the crowd and I'd come up into the players' line. And my mum went, you sure you want to do this anymore? <laughs> I was like, Jesus. It could, be, it could be about that time, if I'm honest. So I think I retired at the end of that season. Did you, did you ever regret that, Sharpie? Or did you think you retired too early at 32? No, had your legs gone? Or you you love a football? Or I think I think I think the legs might have gone a little bit. I think the uh, I think the love of football and the the dedication of keeping fit and staying fit. Yeah, and managers have played under. Do you know what? If I, I, had a, I had a chance. Uh, I played at Portsmouth on loan from Bradford. With Graham Ricks as my manager, and I tried to leave Bradford after after Steve Claridge got sacked. After Steve Douglas said <laughs> Graham Ricks took over, and was absolutely my favourite manager that I've ever played under. And he was brilliant. And I wanted to sign for them the season after, but the uh, the Bradford chairman wouldn't let me go. And if I'd have gone down there, then things may have been different because I got a bit of enthusiasm back. And I love playing down there. The, the team were great. Uh, I mean, we only avoided relegation at the championship that year, that year, so it was a bit of a dogfight. Yeah. But the lads were great. The fans are unbelievable. Uh, the manager was fantastic for me. You touched on your legs going at 32. Do you think that any detriment was because you came into the game so early at 17? No, I don't, I don't think that's what it was. I think I think I was probably, if I'm absolutely brutally honest... We like that, we like that. I think I think the last two or three seasons I was playing, probably Bradford, because I was in and out of the team. The, the, the manager, Paul Jewell, promised me that, that, that uh, Peter Beagrew was leaving 
that I was going to be the left winger. Uh, in the end, Beek stayed, so I wasn't playing very often. When I did play again, I'd play well and get brought off or get left out the next week. And so, so my, my motivation was going, my love of the game was going. I was probably going out drinking a little bit more. Yeah. So I think being unfit, drinking a bit more, not being bothered about the game as much was all a bit of a package. Yeah. Was you smoking by then? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you just gone smoking, drinking. Yeah. Everything else was with it. Late yeah. at night, not really staying fit, eating rubbish. Yeah. The motivation had sort of gone, and I was I was sort of a bit disillusioned and. <clears throat> and I just think rather than if I'd gone to Portsmouth it would have changed it would have all changed yeah because I, you know Graham Richards going to be playing centre midfield there were, there were four or five of us that were senior players and he would pull us in for a meeting before training most mornings and say this is what we're going to do this is what we're gearing up for this week and, and, and give me a little bit of responsibility so I think that, I think the love affair with football might have come back again and, and, and been alright down there but while I was at Bradford knowing I wasn't going to play one of the managers at Bradford said if I pick you I'm going to get the sack said, so I can't play you. He's like, all right, great. Why was that? At Bradford, Jim Jeffries. Yeah, but why was that? Because the chairman didn't want me to play for some reason. Right, okay. Not because of appearances and money or all like that? I don't know, no. No, no. No. What did you think then, what, when the day came, and you thought, well, right, I'm going to be a up, that's it. What did you think then? What am I going to do? Do you know, when I finished Sharpie, I found it so difficult. I, I couldn't, I, I had a bit of a meltdown, similar to yourself probably when I finished football of what to do with my career oh without did you ever did you have any problems and thinking what do we do now yeah yeah I think uh, I think I think I was probably a bit depressed yeah to, to say the least I think I went out and got drunk for about a fortnight yeah same as you Macy yeah and then I think I was I was reasonably fortunate in that I think the reality TV stuff come along so I ended up getting, uh, there was a geezer that got injured in celebrity wrestling and I just thought, you know what, I'm doing nothing. I've got no, got no money coming in. I'll just go and do something. Celebrity wrestling? You know, everyone knows the sharpshooter, Maisie. Is that what, you, is that what your name? A sharpshooter. Uh, <laughs> another original one. I broke a couple of ribs and I only did one show, but got paid anyway. And then it ended up on the Love Island. And then from the Love Island did something else, then did something else. And for... Three or four years. Yeah, tidied you over. I was doing something that was quite social, that was a little bit sporty. Yeah. I mean, dancing on ice must have been quite fun because that's a different set of skills. It. hated it. Oh, did you? Ice skating is so hard to do. Yeah. It is so such a hard sport. So, so I mean, I love the people, love the show. Really didn't like ice skating. It was a bit too hard to, to be good at in a short space of time. Yeah. Dan- dancing is hard. Yeah, dancing <laughs> yeah. is hard. Not for sharpie. I'm a, I'm a crap dancer, so <laughs> dancing is hard. And then to have to actually do it on ice as well. And lift and throw another girl around yeah. while you're on there. Was, oh. uh, was a part of that, do you think, like you've missed the... Did it replace sort of the buzz of playing football in front of thousands to then being on TV in front of millions? I, I think it replaced the, the training. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that you've got You've got this routine that you've got to do. You get your routine. You do your show on Saturday. You get your routine on Sunday. You do your routine Monday, Tuesday. Generally have Wednesday off. And then Thursday you do your routine in front of the camera because they do like a, a snippet of what's coming up. Friday you travel to London so you don't do a lot. Saturday you just rehearse. So you're not, you're not getting a lot of time to actually practice and rehearse. And I think it, it's that sort of, we've got to have this nailed by Saturday. So I think it was the, and we only got 20 points last, last week. So we're in the bottom. So we need to, so it's that good thing, good level, bad level again. Yeah. 
Uh, so it was nice to have, uh, and my whole body shape changed because I was lifting this dancer and you're squatting permanently while you while you're skating. You've got to be in like a bit of a squat position. So you so backside your thighs all sort of go like this. Your shoulders go like that. Uh, so so the shape I was getting in was really good. But the the, the ice skating's just just yourself. You've only got to take one front edge and you you're chewing ice. It's it's not pleasant. Yeah, yeah it's deadly. Sharpa, you when you look back at your career and when you did finish and everything you said you did that for three or four years, when everything had stopped, did you look back and think, oh, maybe I should have kept going for another few years at the football? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm forever analysing. I can I'll analyse. I can analyse. I analyse my golf game. I analyse how I'm doing with the kids. I analyse my whole life all the time. Um, so yeah, I've obviously sat down and thought, what would have been better? Maybe you know, in hindsight, maybe I should have stayed at United for the two years I had left on my contract uh, and just gone for free at the end of it. Maybe the two years I would have stayed there at the end, things might have changed between me and the manager, and, and things might have been different. So yeah, there's there's lots of hindsight things that I, that I think about. No regrets. No, no, no regrets. I think you know you deal with what's put in front of you the best you can at that mm-hmm. yeah. at that moment in time. And it's all right me as a 48 year old now saying, oh yeah, as a, as a 24 year old, I should have done this, this, and this. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it doesn't doesn't quite work like that, <laughs> does it? 24. No. Having having seven or eight years of the manager on my back and and, and getting annoyed with it. It, it, it was it was the time when I thought, do you know what? I'll try something different, something new. So Alex always recommended his players to get married early. Obviously, that can only happen if you're you're obviously with someone. For you, that didn't happen. But but do you think if you had have been married and had have had your kids, it would have meant that you didn't really think about the game so much when you went home every day? You know, you know what it's like now. You probably don't have time to think about other things. But do you think that would have changed things for you playing under the manager? Possibly for a little while, but I also think if I'd have been married young with kids, I'd have been divorced. There's no, there's no way I was actually ready to settle down. Yeah, mm. I think I think I'm only just about ready now. And I'm touching fifty, <laughs> so, so late late teens, early twenties was, was not the time for me to settle down. I don't think. Well, I'm glad that after all that, you do say that you've got no regrets because, as you say, there's nothing you can change. You just go with what happens at the time, don't you? Yeah, no, no, I don't regret anything, and I think things happen for a reason. We're tested at certain times, and things are put in front of us at certain times that we don't know what the positive is that's coming out of it. But usually, something does, and uh, no, I'm, I'm, I certainly don't have any regrets, and mm-hmm. I'm certainly happy where I am and who I am and, and what I'm doing and and what I've got in front of me. I think it's uh, it's been an amazing ride. I've had a fantastic time as a footballer. I had a great time as a reality TV star and doing a bit of TV not really my thing that's why I sort of ducked out ducked out that little bit although we have just done Harry's Heroes and that starts tonight it's not quite so much uh, reality TV as just lads being on tour doing a bit of filming so yeah it's, it's, it's been it's been a blast and I had a proper job all my life brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> I was just going to say to you what are you up to now so obviously Harry's Heroes and apart from that is it the after dinner speaking and a bit of golf yeah I'm doing uh, a bit of golf trying to get my handicap down Harry's Heroes tonight, doing a bit of after-dinner speaking, but potentially trying to get out of that a little bit, maybe, and seeing, uh, seeing what else I can get into. Brilliant. Beautiful. Uh, we always ask people, just before we let them go, if they have a teammate that they would recommend join us on the podcast because they've got good stories. I'm hoping you might be able to recommend Roy Keane to us. And then if you've got his number, chuck him a text if he wants to come on. Uh, I have got a number. I got, I got a text left in the other week, actually, funnily enough. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Keeney would certainly be interesting. Dion Dublin is a good one. 
Big Diz, yeah. Yeah, it'll be fun. Big Diz is a good musician. Shared a room with Diz for a while. Into be a good one. be an interesting one. Yeah. Well, we'll find someone. But if you get if you get another text from Kino, send him a reply. Tell him in, uh, the opportunity's here if he wants it. Okay, I, I can drop my text for you and I could probably give you his reply now, but I'll. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll take the chance if you can do it. Yeah. yeah. I'll certainly drop him the text and let me know what he said. Yeah. Thanks very much. No worries. Sharpie, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you no so problem. much. That was brilliant. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Cheers, Sharpie. Cheers, Maisie. Catch you soon, mate. There we go, guys. No regrets from Lee Sharp. And I don't think he has to have any Maisie either. No. Great career at United. Yeah, absolutely. Won many trophies as, as we touched on. And just very, very honest. So honest. Coming into the team at, at 17 and and you know, still tr- you know, getting changed in the reserve teams and stuff like that. It's just it's surreal, really, looking back at his career, how, how he went. And it's, it's great to have him on and uh, some great stories. Great stories. Yeah, it was really unexpected mm-hmm. because he's such like a, 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 a sort of um, jovial, chatty, charismatic guy. But obviously, I mean, Maisie, you shared a room with him and didn't know a lot of that stuff that I guess he didn't enjoy it so much as it appeared from the outside. It's amazing, isn't it? You just don't know what goes on in, in footballers' minds at the time. You know, he, he talks about, you know, speaking to the gaffer and, and that sort of stuff. And, you know, if you look at two of the players that he actually spoke to, Keeney and Pally, probably not the best two players to ask for advice. <laughs> but, but but that's just the way, you know, players are. You know, they, they keep a lot of stuff to themselves. I think at times as well, it just goes to show how how delicate players can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People going about the mental health and stuff like that. Well, Sharpie certainly probably at, at certain times in his career probably needed that little bit of help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's evident. Yeah. Is that a little bit deep, that? Well, no, I think it suited the podcast perfectly because the podcast I felt was quite deep and I felt quite emotional for him because I almost feel like he had such a great career, won lots of trophies, but maybe he just didn't get to enjoy it the way other people thought he was enjoying it. Yeah. It's quite sad, isn't it? It is because you only see the one side of it. You do. Of him playing and, and scoring goals and his celebrations. And, and that's the way sharp he is. Maybe that's a defence mechanism. Yeah, and and it just comes across as, I mean, I've known him for the last 20 years now and, you know, we, we've gotten ever so well, 25 years, and we still have a right laugh when we see each other. And that's how it always was with Sharpie. And as he says, you know, yeah, he tried to hide behind mm-hmm. that smiling face, but deep down, mm-hmm. it was difficult for him. Sort of like classic teenage rebellion. Yeah. Because he was literally a teenager. He was getting tattoos and dancing when he wasn't supposed to be dancing and having parties and stuff because he didn't know how maybe to express himself. Yes. Yeah, it's very difficult when you come to Manchester United, as a, I presume, as a young kid, and you, you're in a global football team that starts winning things um, you know, from 91 on. So he'd only been 20. But even then, still, still such a young age. So young. Yeah. Great podcast, guys. Really enjoyed that one. Yeah, really good one. Yeah. 
Shall we read some emails? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, I'll go first. I've got one here from Maria who says, Dear Man United podcast crew, I hope you're all doing well in these weird times. Thank you very much for a great podcast. As a Man United fan, I love hearing from my heroes and getting some behind the scenes insight. Yesterday, I was listening to the Rashford and Skulls episode whilst on a socially distanced walk through the woods where I live in Norway. I was having such a great time. I didn't pay attention to the path and tripped on a root sticking out. I fell spectacularly and lost my headphones. My first thought was not to get up or find out if I'd hurt myself but to frantically put my headphones back on so as not to lose valuable seconds of scold Rashford banter. I realise now, of course, that I could have rewinded the podcast, but I wanted you to know that my instinctive priority was to the podcast, not my health. I now have a swollen ankle and a bruised leg, but thankfully no lost podcast time. Thanks again for doing this podcast. Good luck and stay safe. Maria in Asker, Norway. How good is that? Brilliant. Brilliant. But definitely don't put the podcast before your health. Yeah. That is an important message to everybody. Yeah. Not even sure we would do that. Uh, Andy Richards says, Sam, Helen and David, I love what you all do and have especially enjoyed Darren Fletcher, Juan Mata and Paul Pogba. I've followed United from the USA for almost 15 years. My first game was last March at the second leg of PSG in Paris. What a night. I also saw United versus Arsenal a few days later in London. I'd love to hear Rooney or Gary Neville on the pod. Thanks for doing such a great job on the podcast, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Thank you very much indeed, Andy. That was nice, wasn't it? Yeah. Rooney or Neville would be good, wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Have some good stories. Hopefully we can get them soon. We're trying. We're trying. Yeah. Uh, I've got Isaiah Matencio who says, Hi guys, just emailing to show my support for the podcast. I've really enjoyed all of the episodes, especially from heroes I've grown up watching like Fletch, Wes, Berber and Scolzi. I've also loved listening to the players during the 90s with my personal favourite being Pally. Loved hearing the banter between him and Maisie. I can only imagine what went on in the dressing room during that time. (laughs) (laughs) Maisie's laughing. Again, thank you for bringing out all these podcasts. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to these, specifically during isolation. Hope you guys are all safe and well and hope to see more from the whole team soon all the best is there Pritham Iranki says I kind of stumbled upon your podcast on the Apple Podcasts app and ever since I've been loving it in regards to who would you take my suggestion for interviewing next it would obviously be Bruno Fernandez. I mean the whole Old Trafford faithful seem to be singing chants for the name and comparing Bruno to Ronaldo so yeah I would love to hear his thoughts on how he's kind of transformed the whole team on our results both on and off the pitch ever since he's come to the team has been really really great so would love to hear his start on the impact thanks thank you very much that was really nice Uh, Last one then, I've got one here from Siddharth Ranadeev who says, My name is Sid and I'm a huge United fan, originally from India, but currently working and residing in Wisconsin, USA. I've been a United fan since the 0203 season and I have watched United live twice in the past three years, whenever they've been here for pre-season. And I've thoroughly enjoyed both games, even though we lost both. Neymar's goal and the Liverpool humiliation. Brilliant. I hope one day I can travel to Old Trafford to watch United live there. I've been thoroughly enjoying the podcast with Brian Robson's, Berbers and Ollie's being my favourites. They give a totally different perspective on the players we have grown up to idolise and make them more human with their experiences and stories. I had a question. Is there any place I can watch the podcast? I know the YouTube channel posts clips, but any place I can watch complete podcast episodes would be great. Thanks, Sid. Sid, you can watch them. Uh, They all go out in the full form on MUTV. So thank you very much indeed for all of your emails, guys. It's good to see you all. Angie. Good to see you too. Absolute pleasure. Always a pleasure. Hopefully one day soon we can see each other in person. Oh, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Uh, Two metre distance. 
Yep. Hug each hug each other from two two meters. If there's anyone you'd like to hear on a future episode, or if there's any feedback you'd like to give us, then get in touch. You can email us at United Podcast at manunited.co.uk, UTD Podcast at manutd.co.uk. Uh, also, you can subscribe and you can leave reviews uh, in places like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and we do read them. And we're thankful for all the support you guys are giving us. We're glad you're enjoying these, and we will see you on the next one. Yeah.